0: freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring.
1: This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
0: Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers and I'm here with Light Ilea. Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom.
2: That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look with increasing unease at the world we've inherited, and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet, a world fit for all children. So let's keep asking the most urgent questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection.
0: We acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the traditional unceded lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We thank and honor them, acknowledging the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide. And we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is by Jamaica Kincaid from the opening of her story, Down by the River. It's often anthologized as simply, girl. Wash the white clothes on Monday and put them on the stone heap. Wash the color clothes on Tuesday and put them on the clothesline to dry. Don't walk barehead in the hot sun. Cook pumpkin fritters in very hot sweet oil. Soak your little clothes right after you take them off. When buying cotton to make yourself a nice blouse, be sure that it doesn't have gum on it, because that way it won't hold up well after a wash. Soak saltfish overnight before you cook it. Is it true that you sing Bennett in Sunday school? Always eat your food in such a way that it won't turn someone else's stomach. On Sundays, try to walk like a lady, and not like the slut you're so bent on becoming. Don't sing Benna in Sunday school. You mustn't speak to wharf rat boys, not even to give them directions. Don't eat fruits on the street. Flies will follow you. But I don't sing Benna on Sundays at all, and never in Sunday school. This is how to sew on a button. This is how to make a buttonhole for the button you've sewed on. This is how to hem a dress when you see the hem coming down, and so to prevent yourself from looking like the slut I know you're so bent on becoming. This is how you iron your father's khaki shirt so that it doesn't have a crease. This is how you iron your father's khaki pants so that they don't have a crease. This is how you grow okra far from the house because okra tree harbors ants. When you're growing dashin, make sure it gets plenty of water or else it makes your throat itch when you're eating it. This is how you sweep a corner. This is how you sweep a whole house. This is how you sweep a yard. This is how you smile to someone you don't like very much. This is how you smile to someone you don't like at all. This is how you smile to someone you like completely. This is how you set a table for tea. This is how you set a table for dinner. This is how you set a table for dinner with an important guest. This is how you set a table for lunch. This is how you set a table for breakfast. This is how to behave in the presence of men who don't know you very well. And this way, they won't recognize immediately the slut I've warned you against becoming. Be sure to wash every day, even if it's with your your own spit. Don't squat down to play marbles. You're not a boy, you know. Don't pick people's flowers. You might catch something. Don't throw stones at blackbirds because it might not even be a blackbird. This is how to make a bread pudding. This is how to make a Ducana. This is how to make pepper pot. This is how to make a good medicine for a cold. This is how to make a good medicine to throw away a child before it even becomes a child. This is how to catch a fish. This is how to throw back a fish you don't like. And that way, something bad won't fall on you. This is how to bully a man. This is how a man bullies you. This is how to love a man. And if that doesn't work, there are other ways. And if they don't work, don't feel too bad about giving up on men. This is how to spit up in the air if you feel like it. And this is how to move quick so that it doesn't fall on you. This is how to make ends meet. Always squeeze bread to make sure it's fresh. But what if the baker won't let me feel the bread? You mean to say that after all, you are really going to be the kind of woman who the baker won't let near the bread? That's Jamaica Kincaid, girl.
2: Our second regular feature is a free write where we ask you to pause the podcast for as long as you like and write wildly in response to this prompt. Make a list or paragraph of family lessons, the idiosyncratic or funny or fascinating or bizarre or dazzling things you learned by simply breathing in the air and living the common sense of your family's culture, assumptions, beliefs, and practices. Okay. Put some words on the page, spontaneous and unedited, and we'll be right here when you get back.
1: Email us at underthetreepod.gmail.com at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and
3: interviews, and follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
0: Welcome back. Before we get to our guest today, Light Lee and I are going to talk a bit more about high school. I've described her as an acute observer, an ethnographer, a writer and she's now officially a cub reporter. So, Lighty, tell us a little bit more about what's going on with your journalism.
2: So, I enrolled in a journalism class the first chance I got. To be in the journalism class, it's a requirement that you write for the school newspaper. Mm -hmm. So, my first article I was assigned was about um, Diwali and the celebration that we were having for it. Um, so I, I went to the Diwali celebration, which was pretty hilarious because I made my friend go with me because I was scared to go alone.
0: And what is Diwali?
2: Diwali is the Indian Festival of Lights. I was told not to compare it to this, but almost everyone that I interviewed that celebrates it or grew up celebrating it has compared it to like their Christmas. But I brought my friend to the celebration and I was wearing a blazer I was wearing a blazer and holding a um, composition notebook and a pen And I looked ridiculous Like I found my friend there and she was wearing a sari And she was like, hey, how are you doing? Why are you here? And I was like, that's a really good question I'm here because I'm covering the event for the newspaper And she was like, you are really sticking out (laughs) I was like, oh great, that's really good to know but yeah, it was embarrassing. I felt like I didn't belong, but it was also fun.
0: Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the, the the evening?
2: I did. I um my journalism teacher sat me down before I went and he was like, Okay. Normally when a journalist goes to one of these events or a reporter goes to one of these parties, they don't participate, like they don't eat the food or dance or anything but i think for you in this situation it's important to do that why and i was like um so are you saying i should or shouldn't like eat and he was like i'm saying you should like try to eat a samosa if you can Hmm. And I was like, okay. (laughs) I mean, it was my first assignment. I was not going to argue with him.
0: So have you written it up yet?
2: I have not, but I have notes. I have a couple interviews, and I'm probably going to write it up sometime tonight.
0: So when you think about journalism and even covering this event, I mean, a lot of the discussion in the culture these days is about things like cultural appropriation. Do you think about that? Do you guys talk about that in journalism class?
2: He didn't talk about cultural appropriation per se, but he did talk about respectfully portraying different cultures in the news. And I was a little annoyed that this was my first assignment because there's a kid in my, there's a kid who also does um, the newspaper who actually celebrates Diwali. So I was like, you know, she can do a way better job than I can. Kind of like. I'm not specially. sure she can do a better
0: job, but she could certainly have an insider's perspective, right? Yeah.
2: I just felt like she could do a better job with like a more informed and clear kind of thing about it. But
0: was I, I she can't. there that night?
2: Yes, she was.
0: So maybe you want to talk to her before you write your piece up. I you did her talk perspective, to her. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I did.
0: And was are you going to include her perspective? do you think? Is she one of your interviewees?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think I'm going to put in like a quote from her.
0: Great. Um, do you guys talk in journalism about the truth? What is truth?
2: I mean, yeah, we talk about, like, my teacher um, talked a lot about how to not censor the truth, basically. He was like, the worst thing you can do as a reporter is either misquote somebody, say that somebody said something that they didn't say, or change the story to either be less truthful or like truthful in a way that makes it seem like something it isn't i guess
0: Mm. you know it's interesting because i think about this a lot and i think it'd be interesting for you as you go through journalism to think about it there's so many ways to come at the truth i mean just take your computer here i mean on the one hand the truth is there's forensic truth that is verifiable, that is a computer, I can touch it and feel it. On the other hand, there's your personal narrative about this computer, where you got it, what it means to you. And then there's also kind of the history of it. Where did it come from? Whose labor is worked up in it? And there's all kinds of ways to think about the truth. And I often think in journalism we lose fact, we we lose track of kind of dialogical truth. I mean, truth that emerges out of conversation. And I think it's something that we should think about as we go forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I also do Model UN. Um, yesterday, I came back from an eight-hour conference. Eek. Yes, it was it was crazy. I was an emotional wreck by the end of it. But Why? Because uh, there were, like, really intense ups and downs. It was my first conference, and it was just a roller coaster. Like, sometimes I was like, I never want to come to one of these things again. I quit. And other times, I was like, these are my people. I'm so excited to do this again. Wow. Yeah, it was wild. What country
0: did you represent?
2: I represented Belgium for the ECOSOC committee. Huh. But something I've learned about Model UN is that there's, like, zero truth involved in it. It's just, like, people think that these kids are actually, like, solving the greatest crises ever to exist. But actually, we're all just kind of, like, making stuff up and, like... Are you searching for the truth? Not really. We're all just kind of BSing some things and, like, trying to have fun. It's like storytelling. It's like I telling see. a story about, you know, an issue and, like, telling a story about how you're going to fix it.
0: Of course, stories have truth, too.
2: Yeah. I mean, we just did a, a unit in English called What's the Use of Stories That Aren't Even True? Wow. Where we read um, a book by Salman Rushdie called Haroon and the Sea of Stories.
0: Right. You talked about that once. Yeah, yeah probably. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um I want you to tell us a little bit about how you came to write a college essay and maybe read the essay.
2: Okay. So I was with a group of my friends this summer, some kids I've known every summer for my whole life since I was a baby, uh, several of whom are just applying to college. So we gathered one morning for a workshop on writing the college essay, as we called it, and after a lot of discussion, we got a prompt, and each of us wrote quietly for about like 25 minutes. Even though I'm years away from college, I thought it would be kind of fun to try it with them, you know, because I look up to them a lot. So the prompt was, like, what is something that's happened in your life that you thought was meaningful or that describes you as a person? And here's what I wrote in that 20 minutes. When I was in the fifth grade, someone threw a clementine onto the roof of my school building. It landed on a grassy section of roof connected to a floor-to-ceiling window, which I passed every day on the way to flute class. I watched the tiny fruit change color over the course of a week or two before it started to deflate, gradually rotting. I became so interested with the progression of the clementine that I dubbed it with a name, Zesty. I loved the unoriginal title almost as much as I loved the fruit itself. It was fitting, simple, and solid. As Zesty reached the middle of his decomposition, a small black bird flew into the window and died. It lay on the grass with its feet in the air, less than an inch away from zesty. I was obsessed and fascinated. Could it be a sign? Was this omen of death and rotting sent to me by the gods to let me know something terrible was going to happen? I ceremoniously picked a name for the bird as well. Starlina. The name was a pun. Simultaneously a play on the fact that the bird was identified as a European starling by the biology teacher and an homage to a drag queen from a film I liked at the time, coincidentally called The Birdcage. Zesty and Starlina remained in their place for months. I dreaded having to watch my darling Starlina deflate and rupture like I had watched Zesty, but she never did. She stayed there, with her eyes open and her feathers ruffled. I couldn't decide which fate unsettled me more. Zesty browned and flattened over the course of two weeks in the sun, an excruciating and undignified way to go. But Starlina stayed frozen, never moving forward. I don't know if she was ever removed from the roof. I don't know if it's even possible to get to that section of the building and haul her bird corpse off of it so as not to scare the younger students. To this day, I wonder if she's still in the beating sun, on display for passerby at all hours of the day. I never saw Zesty fully decompose, either. By the time I finished fifth grade, he was a dried-up token of citrus, fully brown and dried by the sun. But I turned over the choice of fates in my head. Would Starlina someday get moved, or would she stay there, eventually rotting into the dirt? And was that worse than the fate of Zesty? Was it better to slowly dry out in the harsh sun, or lay on your back, frozen in time? Everything about the situation became a metaphor— I even pretentiously compared the shriveled clementine to my youth, the lifeless bird, to my experience of my personal growth. And I never figured it out. I never understood why Zesty and Starlina were so important to me, why they meant so much. But I still think of them as mascots of my childhood, and I still hope they both found some kind of happy ending.
0: Wow, I'm having a happy ending. That's pretty cool. Um... For a 20-minute essay, uh, and you're still four years, three or four years away from having to write one, but that was a nice beginning. I see a cat walking into our room. <laughs> What's your cat's name?
2: Uh, my cat's name is Mao. Means uh, kitten in Chinese.
0: Hi, Mao. All right. Listen, we're going to pause, and I'm going to leave you for a while, and we're going to go to our um, authors, artists, activists after hours, and I'm interviewing. Anastasia Higginbotham. So I'll be back soon. All right. Really happy to be joined by Anastasia Higginbotham. She's the author, artist, and activist in Brooklyn. Uh, and she created an amazing series of children's books called Ordinary Terrible Things. It's a series uh, which includes divorce is the worst, death is stupid, tell me about sex, grandma, my favorite title ever. Um, Not my idea, a book about whiteness. And we're going to talk about all of that, but we're going to also talk today about You Ruined It. Which is her latest book with Doter Press. D o t t i r. It's just a delight to have you here, Anastasia. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I it's it's been something I've been looking forward to for a long time to get to sit with you like this.
0: You know, and we also have Roxana Espos, our partner and co-conspirator in the room. So we'll we'll begin a three-way conversation. When did we meet, Anastasia? You remember when we actually met?
1: Yes. Okay. Me. Tell,
0: tell Roxana about that. <laughs>
1: We met in Chicago at the bookstore, the bookstore that's down the stairs.
0: 57th Street Books.
1: Fifty Seven Street Books.
0: A legendary bookstore in Hyde Park.
1: Yes. And uh, we read uh, and talked about Not My Idea, a book about whiteness, the year that it came out, this the season that it came out, fall 2018.
0: Right. And my granddaughter was there. Yes. Uh, Lighty. And Lighty is often the co-host on this podcast.
1: Yes, I've heard them. <clears throat>
0: She had her picture taken with you and with Colin Kaepernick, as I remember. Is that right?
1: Yes, Colin. uh, Cardboard Colin Kaepernick, who I traveled with on that whole book tour. There was this opportunity to kneel with Colin Kaepernick on that book tour.
0: So we have a wonderful um, picture of Lydie kneeling with Colin Kaepernick, and she's wearing her Kaepernick jersey, Ah. which is a child-sized Kaepernick jersey, which I got for her. Because her teacher was a huge fan of Kaepernick, and every time she wore the shirt, her teacher was very um, inspired and uh, excited. So yes, that's when we met, and it was a a really fun book reading. And Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued with this ordinary terrible things. Maybe you talk a bit about the origin of the series and and what you what you feel you've accomplished with it. Mm.
1: The um, the origin of the series are a A few, uh, several moments from my own childhood that I seemed not to be able to get past. My experience of my parents' divorce, my experience of my grandparents' deteriorating health, and then from the nursing home to the funeral home, confusion and contradictory messages about sex that made no sense, and then the experience of racialization as a white person. All of these mattered to me and were, you know, like knots in me. And as I, in my 20s, tried to become a writer, I noticed that I kept writing about the same things, the same moments from my childhood. And it was like when an animal who's captive in a zoo or an aquarium will just go in circles. And so it became clear to me in my 30s that I needed to stop trying to get out and really uh, stretch out those moments So what was it about the divorce that I was still stuck in? What was it about my grandparents' death that I was still stuck in? What was it about the way that children are educated or not educated about their own sexuality and their own sexual being and and sexual rights that bothered me so much? And so I started the title Divorce is the Worst was the first that came because of the way that adults will say to children, it's for the best even though it is for them. And the book acknowledges that this is, this is your divorce. This is your experience. And so each book in the series is a way of centering the child in their unfolding, Mm -hmm. you know, life as it is happening to them. And it doesn't attempt to make sense of it, but rather to offer them a chance to turn inward and really focus on like, what is this like for you? What are you noticing? What um. Uh, What's changing and just really to offer so much validation and then also to point out um, who are the resources and what are the resources? There's always a lot of nature in the books. There's always um, even in a house where there might be a lot of sadness or conflict. There's a window and it's the sky is out there. And so the books are an attempt to walk through those events and bear witness to a child, be compassionate, be curious and not solve anything.
0: Yeah, I, I, I really resonated with that with all your books, this idea, as you said about yourself, to stop trying to get away from everything and to dive into the contradiction and try to experience it and understand it, not to resolve it, but to, as you say, bear witness and understand and come to a higher level of acceptance and and ability to move beyond. I find all, all, all these titles um, really worthwhile. Um, not just for kids who are experiencing it, it either i mean i think that they're, they're worthwhile to know that this is part of the world mm-hmm. i like the 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 theme of ordinary terrible things and there are one a couple of titles sprang to my mind as an old early childhood teacher yeah I, I don't know if you know the book angry arthur um but it's <laughs> worth looking up it's it's oh, really? i hope it's still in print it's called angry arthur and it tells the story of a kid getting so angry that he not only breaks up the whole world, but he destroys the universe. And it's all fantasy, but it's fantastic because it's yeah. about it's about anger and about, you know, the, the all-consuming nature of anger when you're in it. And, again, it's from a child's point of view. And mm-hmm. the other one, of course, is the classic Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day yeah. by Judith Biorst. I don't know if if that's been... An
1: I do know that one. I love the artwork in that one so much, especially the scene when they go to the dad's work and the ink spills and Yeah. everyone's so upset with him.
0: Right. And Viorst is a magnificent writer, a magnificent child children's writer and a magnificent feminist writer. But okay, you mentioned the artwork and one of the things I wanted to go to was your process. You have these extraordinary um, collages and I'd like you to talk just a bit about your process and, how you make the books you make.
1: You know, I make them almost the same exact way that I was making books when I was in fifth grade, when my one of my favorite aunts had a baby and I made a book for him with little poems that I wrote. And I illustrated it with construction paper, paper dolls. And I've always used whatever materials were available, glue and paper. and and um, But I've also always drawn. And I've noticed that when I draw as I, I tried to illustrate these these books a number of different ways, because the words came first, but I had the images in my head, and I would I would draw the pictures, and they just didn't have the depth that I wanted, and they didn't look real. And so when I started using collage, and I could put a real sky there, and I could use real pieces of wood to make the frame of a window, and put a little basil plant in that window, and, and you know, find a way to make a vacuum cleaner, and, and, um, you know, choose one of those braided rugs, like the ones that I loved from when I was a child, so I could make it so real using collage. And that was the first time I really felt satisfied with the artwork that I had made and felt like it conveyed what I wanted to. And I, I really wanted to be able to make images that would be emotionally evocative, like the way you remember a moment from your childhood and you remember what color the blanket was. and that it was night and that you were in your pajamas and, you know, to have an image that would, that would do that for for me, but also for the person reading and and remembering, you know, how vivid that was to be up late at night when all the other people are in the house are sleeping. And, and in terms of you ruined it, that's the most, that's the sixth book in the series. And I really made that one and tried to be true to the way that I drew when I was 11 years old and 12 years old, which is the age of the character in the book. So I tried to make it look as much like my drawing from then. So because she is telling the story herself and telling it to herself, and you ruined it.
0: it. It's one of the absolutely most charming aspects of the books. I think the messages are profound, complicated, complex, and yet accessible. But the artwork is, as you say, I mean, it's it, I think it invites young readers in precisely because it feels like something they could do. You know, they're collaging, and it's got three dimensions. And I think it really, um, I thank think you. you've you have done it. It works.
1: Thank you. That means a lot to me. That, well, that really does. I, I can't overstate that.
0: Well, thank you. I, I'd like you to talk a bit about You Ruined It. And tell us a bit about the story not, not necessarily the origin so much as like what the message is and, and how you came to it
1: sure you ruined it is um, a way that I wanted to d- address uh, childhood a childhood experience of sexual abuse within the family where the abuse is one thing um, for the child to cope with but really I, I want I made a book with you ruined It" that, that deals with the aftermath of disclosure and the confusion of when it's a family member, when it's someone that you liked, when it's someone that is uh, connecting you to other members of your family, the confusion of someone crossing a boundary so, so serious as that. And, you, you know, the child in the story is she always loved this older cousin And it's like during a summer when he's about 22, she's 11 and, um, they're spending a lot of time together and she discloses at the end of that summer or later in that summer that he initiated a sexual relationship with her. And, um, so we're hearing from her point of view that the way this played out when she told her mother, when she told Billy, her older sibling, and, um, so but the crisis for the child is is partly that she dismisses him, that that was a really special relationship, and now it's ruined. And um, she feels like she ruined it to some degree, or she's not sure if she's the one who ruined it, or he ruined it. Somebody ruined it. it it's ruined. And um, she's young enough to be surprised that it can't go back the way it was, that they can't just address this somehow. And um, she's just kind of walking us through her process. And, and one of the first things she does is says, I, I want to tell you what it was like when it was good. Mm. Because it's so, in a situation like this, we, we make people who cross a boundary like that and, and people who make such a harmful choice. It, we're so quick as a culture to just immediately make them monstrous you know, he's out, he's bad, he's evil. And, um, she's very still connected to his humanity as well as her own. And so she's not ready to just cast him out like that. And so that how, how her family circles around her is what that book shows. And there's just a lot of care. There's a lot of care that she extends to herself and that her family extends to her and to themselves, but they're all three affected, um, Dawn, the main character, um, her older sibling Billy, and their mom.
0: Yeah, you know, she's not ready to cast him out. And at the same time, um, she and the ones who love her want her to understand the harm without qualification. I mean, they, so, so both things are true. They want to understand the harm completely. And at the same time, she's conflicted about. And I love the fact that you started with what their relationship was like before this catastrophe.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and there's another thing that I think, another element of complexity that you get into, which is the event happened, it changes everything, but then she has to also negotiate who to tell, how to tell them, and what their various reactions are that are not acceptable to her. It's complicated.
1: Right, right. And she... She doesn't know yet what she doesn't know about how this is going to affect her five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, And I felt like my responsibility as the author of the book and as the illustrator on her behalf was to um, just make sure that she could return to herself and return to her body. Cause she does a lot of dissociation in the book. She, and she calls it her new superpower that she got.
0: Um, yeah, She, she can fly um, in her, in her superpower. She flies away and looks back at the situation.
1: Yeah. And so she's trying to relate to this as a, as a power, as a way of um, getting free. Uh, but, but her, process of healing leads her back to herself and to a connection, um, a, a groundedness, literally, that um, so that she can bear to be with with all of those, yeah, all of that con- confusion and all of those different reactions. Um, she's trying to control a lot of things that she can't control because, yeah. you know, and the mother acts right. The mother says no more. You'll never spend time with him again.
0: Yeah. At the same time, mom, both the mother and her older sister, Billy, not only embrace her, but they're willing to go with her into the ambiguity and the complexity. Uh, I really love the ending. It ends with mom and Billy understand why I get sad. They let me go through this. We all know I can do it. And the last line, I am the one I can trust, which is a, a kind of a beautiful theme of the book, um learning to trust yourself and learning that there's lots of angles of regard, but that your angle of regard matters and in a matter like this matters centrally.
1: Right. Because earlier in the story she asks her mom, how do you know who you can trust? You know, why couldn't I trust my cousin? Right. Why couldn't I trust that he knew I didn't want that? Right. And you know, a a character, the girlfriend of Billy, who is a witch, comes and says You're the one you can trust.
0: Exactly. It's a great theme. You know, there's another, we were talking earlier about books, influential children's books. When I was teaching in daycare in early childhood, there was a book that we absolutely loved and promoted. And I don't know if it's in print. I haven't seen it in decades, but it was called Don't Touch Me. I don't like it. Hmm. I don't know if you know that book, but it may not even be in circulation anymore, but it's a little book for Young children, and it's not about child sexual abuse. It's about being able to say it's my body. Yeah, it's my body. And so the images are not of some abuser or some monster. The images are the man in the fruit department at the s- supermarket who thinks he can tickle you, and he's a nice guy, and you like him. But you s- you learn to say, don't tickle me. I don't like it. It's my body. And um, Grandpa likes to, and Grandma both like to kiss you too much. And so the little child learns to say, no, no, don't, it's my body. I, I don't want to right now. And and that that kind of sense of learning the, the phrase, yeah. it's my body, don't touch me, you know, is a...
1: That script is so important to have the permission to, to right. say that out loud. And I mean, how, how, how rare is it to... Well, I mean, I teach self-defense also for a company called Prepare Inc. And um, when we do the verbal pieces that are about setting those kinds of boundaries. Don't touch me. I don't like it. Um, often with the young children, I will play that character, the gr- the grandparent who kisses too much or uh, the relative or friend of your, one of your parents who, who bought you a sweater, you know? And, and so they're like picking at the sweater and saying, oh, you know, the, I, let me see it from the, you know, turn around. Let me see it from yeah, here. They're like pawing you. And, um, and the kids are so, Inclined to be sweet and and they squirm away and they look uncomfortable. And um, what we're teaching them and what we're giving them a chance to practice is that, you know, stepping back just enough and and being able to put their hands up and say, "Um, Thank you for buying me this. I I still don't want you to touch me. Exactly. And then then as teachers, we get really hurt. Like as the grandparent, I'm like, Honey, I love you. I would never hurt you. As I reach in again, you know. And then they have to say, "I I said I don't. Yeah. I love you too, and I don't want you know." So, and it's I very it. challenging. They feel so squirmy, and we all feel so. And it's just like breathe, everybody breathe. Try it again. We're not, I'm not your actual grandma. Go ahead, say it. Say it. Say yeah. it here. To hear what right. it, and feel what it feels like to say it.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I think you would you 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 would you're right in line with this book that I remember from decades ago because the whole point was this little kid standing up tall. And saying it's my body, you know, and and that's the such an important message, you know. You mentioned that you teach self defense, but I'd also like you to say how folks can get a hold of you or get a hold of your work. Um, tell us.
1: Thank you. Um, daughter Press. D o t t i r. It's an Icelandic word for daughter, as you know, as in a child of the parent. And, um, so it's D O T T I R press.com. That, that, um, that's my publisher. All of my books are there to buy directly from the publisher is always best for us. Um, or not doing that, you know, any, any independent bookstore that you love to, and to reach me, I, I stay mostly, I'm mostly available on Instagram at a Higgin books. It's, it's the letter a, Books. Anything Instagram, and um, oh, and, I get and I get to write to people there.
0: Well, uh, Roxana, do you have any other comments, questions that you'd like to?
1: Yeah, uh, actually, a couple of questions.
3: Um, so, um, well, first of all, I, is that a Linda Berry?
1: Yes, I mean behind you. <laughs> yes, this is a, an actual Linda Berry, a real. Well, because um,
3: you know, talking about people from your childhood, she was—I uh, used to read Linda Berry even like as a young kid uh, in the Reader, uh, <laughs> and she was so formative as as I was growing up because she was uh, sort of echoing a lot of like the confusion and like discomforts and all of the anguish that you go through. Well,
1: Marley um, yeah. <laughs> and Mabel, yeah,
3: yeah. So, uh, you know, and she's as far as I'm concerned, she's she's a Chicago institution. <laughs> so.
0: Well, one other one other parentheses about Linda Barry. She she wrote a book called Syllabus about teaching at the University of Wisconsin, and I teach that book because do you I, it? I do. I think it's one of the best books on you know thinking about teaching and learning. I just absolutely adore it. And
1: this this Linda berry my son and I made following linda berry's instructions in picture this oh how to draw marley's so we <laughs> made it ourselves marley's
2: so to make your own <laughs> diy just, well,
1: we just followed the instructions in the book because we have what it is and picture this and syllabus and um
0: yeah fantastic
1: and we do the batmans and stuff but anyway go
3: ahead you wanted to talk well no to- i was gonna ask uh, you know like uh, oh because, um, Bill had asked already, you know, uh, how you, cre- about your art and how you create it and things like that. But are, who are some of like some of the influences that, that you kind of bring to, to the, to the books?
1: Linda Barry is, is number one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just also because I, I, it's the making it by hand, you know, what she calls the original digital device. Yeah. Um, and, um, I got to take her writing the unthinkable workshop at Omega in 2015, but I was already making the books by then. You know, Charles Schultz, I was a big peanuts fan when I was little. I was really into Sally because everybody thought she was dumb, but she was really deep. And um, she fell in love with the school once with the bricks. And like, she would talk to the school and touch the brick. And she really did not like school, but she liked the school the building itself and like related to it in a, in like a telepathic way. And um, so those are big influences and I'm sure there are others, but I, I can't even think of them right now. Charles Schultz and Linda Barry.
3: Well, I'm just completely fascinated by your, by your office space. Cause like you have the, the Fisher price toys, which I still play with Fisher price toys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have the school over there. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, the school
3: one. Oh, the school one, the airport, and the and the little house. I mean, those. Um, my friend Robin and I, we still like she and I go. Um, uh, we go to like garage sales and vintage shops, and every time we see the Fisher Price toys, we're like the little people. Yeah. And the fact that they were that they were from all different races.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um. You know, and and it's you know different ages. It was. They reflected our realities, yeah, you know, yeah, and you more did. than all other toys. did. like Fisher Price toys, man, they were it.
1: <laughs> and those, they were beautiful, like the hospital, the boat, the this is a Sesame Street brownstone, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then there's the schoolhouse. And- yeah, it, I do relate to illustration as as play. To, and I think that's another that's a, another facet of Linda Berry's work that, that really resonates for me is I'm still playing. I mean, that's still alive to me, all of that stuff. It never, it didn't stop. Well, I think
3: that ties into your collaging because you can sort of project your own onto those pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're not like an artist, you can create through collage. Yeah, you can. And you can create with Fisher Price toys, you know um, you can reflect your own reality in those in those toys because mm-hmm. they, they stand in for everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. So. And when I do the like when I get to do collage workshops with kids, whether by Zoom or in person, I bring I, I don't show up with magazines or ask them to bring magazines. I show up with little perfectly cut, I mean perfectly perfectly disguised. And trees and rocks and grass and water and cement and a cracked concrete with the plants coming, you know, little bits of and a couch and a blanket and a and um, pine trees silhouetted against a dark sky. And and I give little bits to them um, so that they and they can immediately start making collage. They're not digging through magazines to find to kind of find their way around the models and the perfection. I bring the the stuff that looks most real, and um, and they they make the most beautiful things with all these different familiar sights. I mean, sometimes I'm made, when I'm making a book and I'm like really deep in the collage. I'll go outside and see something, and I think, oh, I want to cut that out, and it's like, no, no, you, don't. you can't. That's real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's the actual what that building looks like with that corner of sky and those power lines. That's just how beautiful it is. So when, you know, finding that in the pages of a magazine or an old book or an old, you know, home decorating book, I just find that you can make a place where you can exist, where you can imagine existing or being inspired or, or resting, you know, and I like to, I like when children are, really tuned into that. And, and, you know, they make decisions really quickly.
0: Anastasia, this is, uh, this part of the conversation is leading me back to the theme of this podcast, which is freedom. Mm -hmm. You are an artist. You are a writer. Um, The question of freedom and of freedom to read freedom to construct, freedom to create is in question is in doubt in some ways. And as you were talking, and as we were going over your titles, I was thinking, you're the embodiment of what DeSantis hates about art, and 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 everything you raise is like raising questions, making things complicated. The world is much simpler than you say, um, according to Ron DeSantis. So I guess I'd like you to if to take a minute and reflect on the question of freedom and what it means to you and what it should mean to us uh, in this fraught and complicated and difficult world that we live in.
1: Well, in terms of the children who I depict in the books, the child I am who I connect with in order to make them, the children who I hope will see themselves in the books, you know, grown children and children now, um, they don't have a lot, children don't have a lot of freedom. I mean, and and we're, we're, we're supposed to see it as a bad thing that if children are free, because they would be, you know, they need limits, they need structure. And I, yes, yes, to a degree. Yes. But they're not even free to know themselves that, and that to me is the most serious. That is the gravest harm that we do to children. Is like, you're not allowed to know that feeling. It frightens me for you to be heartbroken. So I am not going to let that happen. It frightens me for you to be too angry about the fact that you have to sit still all day in school. You can't go to the bathroom when you want to. You can't um, get a drink of water when you want to. You can't get two drinks of water in the same you know thirty minute span. You can't touch each other. Like in in school, my son was always getting in trouble for touching other kids, not against their consent, like just because, like puppies. You know, like we want to roll around together and um, they would get in so much trouble for connecting and and specifically like the bathroom thing is really is is really big to me for children. Like. You have to ask permission to go to use a bathroom and then be, you know, and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no and they're mistrusting it's um, so you're not free.
0: Or, or you all go to the bathroom together boys in one line girls in the other line and you say wait a minute the only time in your life that you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom is between the ages of five and 18 after that you know you go to the bathroom when you have to go to the bathroom right right right
1: the just the no privacy of the, the children experience generally um, always being watched always having to be on. And I remember being in school, you know, going to school and just not not using a bathroom all day long, except to wash my hands, you know. And um, there's a we just we do a lot of violence to them in ways that are so absolutely normal. Yeah, they're no, normalized. they're
0: normalized. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I think that I'm glad you went to the question of children first for two reasons. One is because I think you just nailed it that that to be ruled to be oppressed is to be under constant surveillance, is to be bossed around by people who, yeah. you know, don't know what you actually need. It's to be spied on and regulated yeah. and become a target of instruction. All these things.
1: Target of instruction. Ooh.
0: Drive yeah. me crazy. They drive Stop me crazy. teaching me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's, I'm in the spirit of recommending more titles. Um, and I'm sorry, I can't help myself. <laughs> no, do it, I'm, do it. I'm a bit of a professor, but. There's two little books that I think you would love. John and Jenna is the name of the couple that writes them. Okay. They're children's books. One is called A Rule is to Break. Oh. And the other is called We Say No. And, uh, and it, it's really about the natural anarchism of kids. Anarchism in the best sense. Anarchism as mutuality and anarchism as, you know, no, no kind of arbitrary limits on your ability to experience life. Um, I think you would like both books.
1: I think Um, I would, too.
0: A rule is to break, and uh, we say no. Uh, The rule is to break. I'm remembering different things. I remember, for example, they advocate that you take some tempera paint and draw on the television screen in your living room.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, and the thing about it is, like, so I remember taking my child to school, and um, the school expected that the children would wear uniforms. And um, only the white children showed up in no uniforms. Yeah. So who gets to break rules and who doesn't? Exactly. What are the consequences? And so, you know, so all the, all the white boys have long hair and whatever clothes they wanted to come out of the house in. And so it's so it's so has to also include that. That's right. That aspect of like, for whom is freedom? Just I, you know, as soon as that lock is unlocked on that door, I'm right out of it. And for whom it's like no 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 there's so many more yeah. there's yeah. so many different consequences and different kind of fallout yeah good child to just say the word stupid yeah. and and the, there's real it's gonna you know it's gonna hurt
0: no yeah, it gets back to this question of of child abuse I mean is the I mean we can talk about abuse on several levels but even in the book that you wrote I mean kids are taught to be obedient and to conform. And that's the expectation that good kids are being obedient kids. And that's right there um, a huge, huge problem. Yeah. yeah. You know, you yeah, you talked about freedom, and I'm so glad, as I said, that you went right to children. But now I'd like you to think a bit about this question of banning books, the yeah. question of uh, in fact I I've often thought and you you're the perfect target for this. I think I wish somebody would ban my book very noisily on national TV then it becomes a bestseller. You know I mean, it's automatic as soon as That
1: would be you know it it hasn't proved to be so though. Yeah. I mean the book is the book is going along as it was but um not my idea a book about whiteness, when it made uh, it made its way to a lot of lists the summer of 2020 right. when there was a lot of positive and outraged energy about racial justice um since then since the bans began and Fox News started to say the name of the book and say my name and um and it it's on a different list now i i think people are actually staying away from it
0: oh, Not that's anybody. that's said
1: but I think um I think there's a lot of uh damage that's that's real about and people will say, you know, I love your books. I just, you know, I want you to talk about these books, but not that one. And they'll just right. say it, just not that one. Not please don't address white supremacy. And I'm like, Did you hear what you're saying?
0: Yeah, really.
1: You're doing it right now.
0: And you know, right there. I mean, how can you be free if you're if you're being told that there's limits to what you can read what you can see what you can understand i mean it 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 just strikes me as we're going into the not just backwards we're going forward into a new kind of um brave new world and it's it's a little terrifying but when i was saying banning a book can be good for it i was thinking of tony morrison you know because when they tried to ban when they banned her book in tennessee and florida Every library brought extra copies, every bookstore, and the place went, you know, the book went through the roof. So yeah. Yeah. anyway, I, I think your books are very important for young people and for adults as well.
1: Thank you. I do too. And I uh, hopefully the adults will help us get it to the kids because I, I, I find I'm having a hard time getting too into kids' hands because many adults are afraid of what will happen when the child has this access to themselves.
0: Well, I think that I I also what you make me think now is that one of the reasons that we have trouble um, talking with kids about difficult subjects is because we ourselves are not confident talking about it. So I remember very vividly when my kids were in um, elementary school and there had been a it was actually middle school and there had been a shoving match between two kids and they called each other um, racist names. and I went to the school and said the kids are buzzing about this. My kids are buzzing about it. You should take it up as a subject in homeroom. And the response was, "We don't want to create a problem." Well, wait, what? <laughs> you know, what? What country do you live in? Um, yeah. You don't live. You know, you don't live on the south side of Chicago. Where are you? So I, I worry about that. That we we're into an avoidance posture because we ourselves have not reconciled how to talk the truth about what we see and what we understand. And
1: and, and our own ob- obedience is coming through to our great, great um, disadvantage. I mean, yeah. it, this is not a moment to obey. This is not a moment to say, well, you know, we'll just get through this time and then, you know, maybe later when things cool down. What do you mean later when things cool down? Now, now, now. bring these books out. Everybody read Toni Morrison. Everybody read Gender Queer. Everybody... Yep get it, yep. give it away. And, so, and some people of course are doing this, but um, you know, we, we, we have an opportunity and, and I think kids want, obviously kids want the information. It's, it's only the adults that don't want them to have it.
0: Well, they want the information, but also they have the experience and they ask about real things that they actually see. So mm-hmm. it can be something as simple as you're on a bus, Somebody gets on a wheelchair and a three-year-old says, why is that person in a wheelchair? And if the adult says, don't, don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're not talking about it, right? I mean, right. there's something you could say that's reasonable rather than yeah. insane. Well, Anastasia Higginbotham, I want to thank you so much for joining Roxana and me. Um, your work is so important and I'm really delighted that we had a chance to dive into it with you. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here
0: before we close I thought up another pop quiz I'll bet you weren't expecting that but just to shake things up a bit I'm going to give you a pop quiz lady and our listeners can join in here's the pop quiz there's four questions lady ready okay would you close a pediatric unit in a a hospital if you ran a hospital would you close the pediatric unit if you could make significantly more money by converting it into housing for adult patients Yes or no?
2: Probably not.
0: Would you solicit charitable donations to help children impacted by war and then pocket 70% of what you collected, calling it legally, by the way, overhead?
2: Uh, Probably not. Like, I hope not.
0: Would you call doctors into a group meeting after work and offer them bonuses, significant bonuses, if they would add additional illnesses to patients' medical charts in order to collect more money, billions more, from Medicare?
2: No, no. I mean, I assume I wouldn't do that.
0: Okay. Would you market a line of trendy clothes to American kids if you knew they were made by super-exploited child labor in sweatshops in Bangladesh?
2: Wow. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't know why I would ever do that. I don't well, know why I, I would ever I have, be in the position to do that.
0: I have bad news for you, because you answered no to all four questions. You will not be a good capitalist. Wow. I'm really sorry. <laughs> and, but if you answered yes, if those of you listening answered yes to any one of them, enroll immediately in the nearest business school, join the ranks of the well-mannered barbarians with their MBAs in hand, and start making money off the labor of others.
2: Jesus Christ I know Okay folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams Let's try to stay all the way human
0: Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo to my co-conspirators Light Eye Lee and Roxana Espos and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering Go forward, keep rising and make your life an expression of the marvelous with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind until next time.